She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. An hour before Democrat leaders were scheduled to go to the White House to meet with the president to talk about rebuilding our nation's infrastructure, the Speaker of the House actually accused the President of the United States of engaging in a cover-up. There is an itch in our caucus for impeachment, but let's not uh, deal with that yet. It's not just the Speaker Pelosi. Adam Schiff, done this for two years, lied to the American public. Chairman Nadler, people ought to look at this. When he ran for chairman of the committee, you know what he went to his Democrat friends to say why to vote for him? Because he was the best person to be in place to impeach the president. And now, Stacey Washington. Hey there. Welcome, welcome, welcome. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, we have a fantastic program today. Um, I'm Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. And uh, so what do we have planned for you today? What are we going to talk about? Well, uh, I first want to point you to some of our best places that you can go. Um, I want to point you to AFR.net, UrbanFamilyTalk.com, and other great websites that we have available for you. Um where we are going to be checking out some of that content and getting into that in just a couple of minutes here. Um, so on the show today, who do we have? We have Anastasia Bowden. She is a senior attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. She's going to come on and join us to talk about Kamala Harris's bad equal pay plan. And then we're going to dig into um, Ben Carson. He's in the news a lot right now for whatever is going on with uh, with the whole situation with his new plan for evicting all of the people who are staying in government housing on our dole who happen to be in the country illegally. The numbers are substantial. Uh, we're talking about one out of every five homes or so that that is a Section 8 dwelling has illegal aliens dwelling in it. And that is a subsidized program. Taxpayers subsidize that. So we need to have that rectified. Uh, so, of course, in addition to that, um, we're going to be taking your call. So please do... Call in at 866-963-2037-866-963-2037. Right now, I want to dig into Cardinal Burke saying resisting large-scale Muslim immigration is responsible and patriotic. This was kind of shocking to hear. It's number two. I think the fundamental question here is someone who resists large-scale Muslim immigration committing Uh, an immoral act and therefore should be let's say denied holy communion or or in some way uh, recognized as a public sinner to resist large-scale muslim immigration uh, in my judgment is to be responsible in the sense of um, making sure that those who are immigrating to the country remember that the definition of the church's teaching is that the individuals are not able to find uh, a a way of living in their own country. And this is not true of of immigrants who come, uh, who are opportunists, and in particular in the case of of Islam, which by its definition is, uh, believes itself to be destined to rule the world, uh, coming in large numbers to countries and you don't have to be a rocket scientist 
to see what's happened, for instance, in Europe, in countries like France and Germany and also here in Italy, and it's also happening in the United States. There's a very interesting book written called No Go Zones, in which uh, records places in the United States where, in fact, uh, Muslim immigrants have set up their own uh, legal order. In other words, they resist the authority, the legitimate authority of the state. Wow. So have you, have you, when's the last time you heard someone really accurately describe in the way that he just said, what's happening with Muslim immigration? I, not me. Um, I honestly, I've, I've not heard that explained in that way. And I think it's kind of outstanding, first of all, that he's doing it. And second of all, that we have the opportunity to now, because he's doing that, we can take, just take a moment and say, okay, is he right? Is he telling the truth about this? So let's look at um, the remainder of his comments. It's number three. To be opposed to uh, wholesale um, or large-scale Muslim immigration is, uh, is, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, a responsible uh, exercise of, uh, uh, of, of one's patriotism in the sense that we Yes, people who are true refugees who, who can't, can't live in their own country, we must receive them and help them in every way. But this is not the case uh, when you have simply a large-scale immigration. So he's talking about large-scale immigration where assimilation does not occur. Now, he didn't say specifically assimilation doesn't occur, but we know that when there's a large-scale immigration of any kind, the individuals who come in usually end up getting situated together. Um, and so they, the, the force of habit of hu human beings is we're going to be most comfortable in the environment that we're used to, even if that environment is detrimental to us. So what you see is these no-go zones popping up because they get here to America and assimilation means you have a few people from a people group coming in and they're coming in and, you know, in a family unit, of course, and by a few, I mean, you know, it can be tens of thousands, but comparatively, the people are not being located in one space. They're being spread out across the country and the communities that they go into have been prepped and are prepared to receive them. So then they're given the opportunity to learn about American life and to be assimilated, which means gradually it's, it's a shock to the system no matter how you do it. But it's a gradual adoption and adaptation to American life that it doesn't mean that the immigrant completely leaves behind everything that they knew before, but it means that they begin to accept and incorporate the new things that, are that, that they're experiencing, that they're coming into contact with. And as that happens, the people who are, are immigrating in, they're much more likely to accept like, you know, okay, we're coming from an Islamic country where women have no power. Women are property. They're not even allowed to leave the compound without a male companion. Here in this country, women don't have any of those restrictions. In order for you to accept that, if you come in and you're in a, a locale where everyone from your home country that's immigrating in year after year, decade after decade, they're all getting located in this one central area like we're seeing up in Dearborn, Michigan, those people tend to just say, yeah, we're in America, but our ways are better even though they had to leave their country, right? Their country's war-torn and things didn't work out. They had to leave there and they're still 
going with a force of habit, going with what they know, reinstituting the same policies that tore down their previous home, namely Islam. And they put that into practice. And then before you know it, yeah, we're in America, but our people don't allow women that kind of freedom. Our people, or if we do allow them that kind of freedom, it's so that we can send them to Congress so they can bring Sharia back to reality, like Ilhan Omar. These are the kinds of ideas that she has. Un-American ideas that are unworkable for a population such as our own. And so you see this happening again and again and again, but the worst culprits, the, the ones who it seems to impact in the very worst way tend to be those who are practicing Islam. So what he's saying, I, I know it's controversial and, you know, there's probably been some pushback, but I was surprised to hear it because I not only do I agree, but it's time for more people in positions of leadership like Cardinal Burke speaks to huge, like millions of Catholics. And his saying this, his making the statement and summing up what's been happening around the world, especially in Western Europe, where if you think about it, the, the primary goal of someone who is, quote unquote, a refugee or seeking solace someplace else would be to go to a country that has the same beliefs and ideals that they have. So people who practice Islam want to come to America for their prosperity, for the job opportunity and all of that. But as far as the freedom and the egalitarian nature of our treatment of men and women, the equality, the Constitution, that's not what they're here for. And he spoke of the subjugation that is built into Islam, the the political portion of Islam, where people who practice Islam believe that one day they will establish a caliphate and there will be no other religion left except Islam on the face of the earth. And they believe that they can help bring that to to being whether it's um, by lying, which they call taqiyya, or through brute force, meaning they have more children than everybody else around them and they take over by sheer numbers, or through the making of war. In any of those scenarios, a receiving country has to be aware that that is the goal of this religious sect and that that's what, it, you're, that's what you're getting. When you say, we're going to take in this many you know, thousands, tens of thousands of refugees from this part of the world, the part of the world that's practicing Islam, you're basically saying you want to bring this into your culture and incorporate it in. You're bringing them in and making them citizens. Once they're here and they're citizens, I mean, what what all can you do about it? And the resulting terrorism, which people online love to try to equate homegrown terror from Americans with terrorism from people who are, you know, they're some kind of immigrant from abroad. And my response to that is the same as it is with the other kinds of crime that we have here in this country that are done by Americans. We already have enough crime. We already have enough criminals. We already have enough potential homegrown terrorists without bringing more in so that we can increase the likelihood that we have that going on. So it's not about not wanting to help. We do help. We send billions of dollars in aid to Middle Eastern countries. Americans are already paying through the nose for the privilege of being helpful. The issue here is not that we're, we don't want to be helpful. Are you kidding me? The numbers belie that fact. That, that, that's not a fact. Let me, let me adjust that. The numbers that we send, the dollars, American taxpayer dollars that we send to the Middle East, and I'm not talking about the military defense budget. I'm talking about the dollars that we send in USAID, dollars with no strings attached. The money just goes over there and they could blow it into the wind, whatever. It's, it's there. 
Those dollars are the proof that we're not xenophobic, Islamophobic. We don't care. None of that. If we were truly Islamophobic, the first thing we would do is turn off the spigot and stop sending on that money over there. We'd pull every bit of military resource, every man, woman, every dependent child. We would pull everything we had out of the Middle East and we would say, we have enough oil reserves to last us for 300 years. We'll see you in 300 years. And we would pull out. If we were truly Islamophobic and we had a problem with Islam and Muslims, we wouldn't be over there. And none of them would be over here. Other countries don't have the same kinds of immigration practices that we have. You don't see a lot of Muslim people living in Japan. You also don't see anybody yelling and screaming about Japanese people being Islamophobic. Have you noticed that? There are a few countries on this planet, and I mean, like, there are a considerable number, that don't have any Muslims in it. And so are they Islamophobic, or have they simply chosen not to take part in everything that's going on? They're saying, we're weighing the cost, and we don't think it's worth it. We're not going to be involved. But Americans have to bear the brunt of being so-called racist. Really? How can you dare say that? How can you fix your mouth to say that about Americans when we do everything that we do? If Americans were truly as racist as these quote-unquote practitioners of Islam, the activist ones, are saying, then we wouldn't allow anyone who practice Islam to serve in our government as an elected official. We wouldn't allow it. You know, when Americans get together on something and we're unified and have one mind, we've done it in the past and I believe we could do it again. We can make statements about what we believe and what we don't believe. So if that was the case, Americans would make that statement through their political processes and also through the simple note, there wouldn't be any Muslim teachers. Parents wouldn't allow it. There wouldn't be any, uh, you know, mayors who were Muslim or, or anything having to do with the public eye. We wouldn't have all of those visas from the Middle East, people coming over here on those tech visas, working in our companies and our corporations and bringing their families with them. They're here on HB2 visas. They wouldn't be here because Americans own the companies. If Americans were truly xenophobic and racial, they would say, yeah, put those HB2 visas in some other country, some country that's not in the Middle East, because none of those people are working for me. We wouldn't have anti-discrimination laws if we were racist, would we? Do racists vote for laws to constrain their own racism? Okay, all right. I'm not going to get worked up. We'll be back with Anastasia Bowden of the Pacific Legal Foundation. I'm Stacey Washington. She was a baby girl left abandoned on a doorstep in China. Our friends met her in that orphanage that had saved her life, and they adopted her. And believe me, she's not an orphan anymore. There are a lot of folks who have felt orphaned for much of their lives, either left behind or left alone. Maybe you know the feeling. Well, just like that little girl, someone went a long way to get you. Someone who chose you. He's adopted a lot of spiritual orphans into his family, and he's ready to adopt you too. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We've been cut off from the Heavenly Father by choosing to run a life that He was supposed to run, so we feel spiritually fatherless. But God's Son came all the way from heaven to that awful cross to pay for your sins and give you the chance to be His. You can belong to Him by saying, Jesus, I'm yours. It's something we'd love to help you do. Call us at 888-NEED-HIM or go to chataboutjesus.com. You will never feel orphaned again. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. 
Years ago, when our infant daughter died, Karen and I were devastated. Many friends heard about our tragedy and ministered to us at this point of incredible need. But there was one man who bugged me, to be honest with you. This fellow said, I have peace in my heart that this tragedy is not because you and Karen have sinned. I was offended by his attitude. He was arrogant and condescending, and it bothered me greatly. He seemed to think he had a corner on spiritual discernment. Not every tragedy, illness, or hardship is an indication of God's judgment. But some suffering and hardship is, in fact, God's instrument of judgment or discipline. Sometimes the only way God can get our attention is by allowing suffering and pain to visit us. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, David and the nation of Israel experienced an incredible famine. Listen to these words. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. God told David clearly, yes, in fact, this famine is due to Saul's great sin. Now, David went on to make things right, but I want to make some observations uh, for our benefit. Uh, Make past wrongs right before the Lord. Don't let things stay around. If you know there are wrong things you've done, make them right before the Lord. Look closely at yourself. What are your motivations? Are you living a pure life before the Lord? Take your sins to Christ and restore that communion with Him. Here's what I want you to remember today. Sin is serious business. We need to keep short accounts and thereby minimize the consequences of sin. Legacy Moment is a production of Moody Radio. You can download episodes of Stacy of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. <laughs> Hello, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being with us today. We have um, just another minute. We'll be with our guest, Anastasia Bowden, Senior Attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation. Um, right now, I would love to delve into, and I just, I have something super quick um, for our encouragement today. And so this one is one of my favorites because I love to meditate on how God loves us and how he sees us and to, to try to get my mind off of what happens in the natural, which is what we think about ourselves because we can be pretty negative. And so this is Jeremiah 31, three, and it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. These are the kinds of things that we can meditate on to get our minds off of what we may feel in the natural about ourselves and our shortcomings and our failings and to focus our minds on the fact that God truly loves us and he cares for us and he appreciates us and he made us, he created us. Um, for relationship with him. So I have I love you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness, Jeremiah 31, three, and that's the encouragement for today. All right. It's my pleasure to welcome um, our first guest in the program today, Anastasia Bowden, senior attorney, Pacific Legal Foundation. Anastasia, thank you for joining in. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's talk about, um, well, first of all, I did discuss this a few days ago, cause, but I didn't go into the details of the plan because all I heard was the government should be in charge of making sure that people get equal pay. And I immediately shut my ears off and was like, not today. And 
<laughs> I knew that the person talking was Kamala Harris. Also, she has tons of bad ideas. <laughs> like she's always having bad ideas. So I felt I'd pretty much covered it when I just rejected it out of hand. But apparently there are some details here. There are. Uh, under Kamala's plan, companies must now become equal pay certified in order to even do business in the United States. So what they have to do is show that there's no pay gap or that the pay gap is not attributable to some uh, factor like merit. So it places the burden on the company to prove that before even doing business. And there's more, too. In addition to that, they have to disclose things like how many women they have in leadership, and they have to disclose the pay gap with even without regard to factors that might create a pay gap, um, like the uh, level of experience of the women in the company or how many hours they work, et cetera, educational history, et cetera. And on top of that, to boot, for every 1% pay gap there is in the company, uh, the company has to pay 1% of profits to the government. So that's Kamala's For them to do what to, with? Uh, make us equal. What do they do well, with that money? <laughs> <laughs> more of the same, and Kamala estimates that it's going to be billions of dollars to the government under this plan. But how does that help women? If the company gives the money to the government and they haven't given it to the woman um, and the men aren't getting it because they're already overpaid, according to Kamala Harris, the government gets the money. And then what? Like, this is just out. This is out and out tyranny. Well, and it's, it's unnecessary because study after study continues to show that any purported pay gap results from the voluntary choices of women related to what type of field they want to enter, how dangerous that, that field is, what type of flexibility it offers, what kind of leave choices it offers, etc. Women make choices that are different from men, and those choices tend to mean that they get paid less, but it's not a result of some sort of invidious discrimination. It's a result of women being able to choose lifestyles and jobs that suit them. Okay. So you said it, and I was, I was just thinking this to myself. One of the things that I've noticed, and since we've had children and now they're getting ready to fly the coop, and over these years that we've had them here at home and I've interacted with other moms, whether it's the moms that I'm friends with or the moms who are friends with my friends or the moms who their kids are friends with my kids. I've noticed that there are so many ways that American women take advantage of the flexibility of the American workforce. I've seen everything from moms who work full time. And I mean, high powered, you know, they're out of town a lot moms all the way down to moms who work every other week (laughs) or one week a month because they share a job. They share one full time job with three other women. So they get the benefit of working full time, um, but it's one week out of the month. And then they get to have the benefit of raising their kids and taking advantage of that, being able to, you know, pick up from school and go on field trips and stuff like that. And I've seen, of course, women who work from home like I do, women who own their own businesses and they decide how much they're going to sell and how much time they're going to spend selling it. The level of command and control that American women have over how we interact with the workforce and our families is the envy of every other woman on the face of this planet. Why would Kamala Harris want to destroy that? Well, I think you're exactly right. This is the freest female generation in history. And 
it's not the government's prerogative to come in and fix the consequences of women's voluntary choices. I mean, and this is just perpetuating the myth that women are being discriminated against when they're not. And I don't think that's empowering for women. This is supposed to be for women's benefit, but it's it's paternalistic. It's patronizing. It's not empowering. What's What's empowering is to do what you said is to recognize that women have more choices than ever and are able to to choose jobs as they see fit to live the lifestyle that they want. Mm. So um, I I think one of the other things that it's important for us to point out is that, and I know you've you've covered this, but I just want to reiterate it um, and get some more detail from you. So when you talk about the the choices that women make in the workforce, which are contributing factors to making less money. Studies that have been done by the Heritage Foundation and other places have shown that American women tend to take some time off when they have children. And while they're taking that time off to raise a child from, you say, birth to age three, where they're going to preschool, their male counterparts are still working 60 hours a week and have sometimes gone on to get a master's degree or other outside training and certifications. And so when the woman returns to work after three years off for her, you know, one child, um, or does that multiple times over the course of her career because she has three children, that can add up to a significant pay gap for someone who they initially started off, they were neck and neck, but now the man has cr- climbed the career progression much faster because he never took a break from working. You're exactly right. And there's other factors too. I mean, women just tend to take jobs that are less dangerous and, and less risky. And of course, those jobs pay more. Um you know, there's all sorts of factors. For example, Uber did a study about if it had a pay gap because they pay people based on an algorithm. They're completely neutral to if the employee is a man or a woman. Um, and yet what they found, and they were surprised to find, is that there's a pay gap at Uber. And that's because men choose to drive at peak times when uh, there are higher fares. They tend to drive more. They tend to drive at higher speeds, which means that they take uh, more risk, but also take more trips. So there's all these factors that lead to a pay gap. Um, again, that that don't have to do with discrimination. It's just based on you know natural things that lead to differences in pay. Okay, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that one, Anastasia. <laughs> I was not <laughs> expecting the pay gap to exist at Uber due to some of the things that you're now I I readily will admit to the facts that you've submitted there that women are not as big of risk takers as men women are not as aggressive as men and a woman may be more leisurely about being an Uber driver than a man would be but you're saying that those those factors actually contribute to a pay gap that is in this new company Uber's new this is not an old place this is like a new place and they're still seeing this persistent gap Right. Uber is, you know, a new tech-friendly, progressive company. Um, And again, they are totally blind to how they pay employees. They don't care if you're a man or a woman. They just use an algorithm that just tracks when you drive, you know, how much the fare is and what the fares were at that time. And they're finding that there is a pay gap at their company um, just because of the voluntary choices of their employees. It's no no fault of their own. So the person who drives... Um, maybe three fares an hour because they drive a little bit faster or they choose fares in in such a way like they're basically you're strategizing you're looking at the uber app and you're accepting fares that will keep you in a certain radius so you can do more trips 
you're going to make more per hour than someone who just leisurely picks up a fare here and there or maybe doesn't kind of organize and strategize the, the, the actual work ex- itself. Right, or there might be peak times of day, you know, times of day when they have, uh, you know, increased fares, so you get two times the amount of money. People have to pay two times the amount of money because there's more demand, and it just so happens that, you know, men are choosing to drive at those times, maybe because women are driving themselves, you know, to pick up their kids or what have you at those times, but there is this gender difference in terms of time of day. And, of course, how many hours they choose or maybe driving late at night. You know, driving late at night might uh, provide more money, but I think women naturally may, may be averse to that because we worry about our safety. So there's these factors, again, that, that all contribute to the pay gap, um, but don't, don't mean that the company is discriminating. Mm, I mean, that is fascinating. I've, I've always found... Uh, the different reasonings when they when they do these deep dive studies, especially the one that the Heritage Foundation did where they went in and they looked at, I mean, they compared apples to apples. They found people who had identical degrees and identical kind of companies that they work for, and they were able to compare apples to apples, men and women, but they found that the women took more time off for child rearing, didn't work as many hours during the week, and didn't travel as much, and travel is associated with higher pay, especially the higher up you move when you get into management. If you're traveling a lot, you're usually making more money. Um, and so it's just an interesting thing that it would appear in Uber. Like, I, I was not expecting that. So how do Americans actually understand what she's proposing? Or are they just listening to the headline and, and applauding because she sounds like she wants to do something? Well, I mean, I, I tend to think that a lot of plans like this are virtue signaling, you know, that people see it and they just, with their gut, they support it without fully looking at the details or thinking through the consequences on the economy. Um, recently, California passed actually a gender quota for boards of public companies. So now you must have one woman, at least one woman on the board of every company. And, uh, you know, Governor Brown, when he signed the legislation, he said himself, I think this is probably going to get struck down as unconstitutional, and it probably will. But he said, this sends a message to the public. So I think that's what politicians are interested in. They're just interested in sending a message and kind of, uh, you know, using that to get more popularity, and especially Kamala, who's now running for president. But what if what if a company has a board of directors that's all men because they don't want any women on there? Like, what about the freedom of association? And I'm, I'm not saying that because there's anything wrong with women. But what if the men who are on that board actually have a camaraderie and a working relationship that's good and they don't see a need to add anyone else? Or what about companies that have all women board of directors where because of the product or because of the nature of what they're doing as a business, they feel like women would be better and, and that's work for them and they're making money and so they don't want to make changes. Why is the government, um, how, how is the government adequately suited to make this choice for a business about who should be on their board of directors? Well, you're exactly right. There's all sorts of reasons why boards might be composed a certain way. It might be that there's not a level of interest from one gender in that industry, or it might be that it's an ideological organization. Maybe it's a men's organization, or maybe it's a women's organization, and so they want to form their board in a certain way. And in fact, the law professor recently pointed out that I think it's something like 17% 17 of boards with five members will just as a matter of random chance have a zero or just one member because, you know, even if you weren't discriminating, you're just picking out of a hat, you would have very few of one gender 
um, 17% of those boards would have very few of one gender because that's just the way that random distribution goes. So there's all these reasons, non-discriminatory reasons. Um, but but also even if, if you wanted to, if you just wanted to comprise your board that way, that is your right. We have freedom of association. We have freedom of, of thought in America or at least we should. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I get, I get what you're saying. We, we should. And the other thing, um, cause like, so I, the only, well, I've served on, I think three boards, but the one that I refer to the most often is the one I was elected to. Um, and it was a school board. And so the, what the board is comprised of is, is there are more than one factor that goes into how you end up with a school board that has, you know, whoever is on it. And we tended to, in that district, have older people on the board as opposed to younger people because the younger people are raising their kids. So they're volunteering in the school district and they're doing things. But the older people who no longer have kids at home or their kids are high schoolers now have time opened up in their schedule to serve on the board and they feel much more confident about doing it. So I was one of the younger people on the board. I was the only one who had kids in my age range on the board of education when I was there. But I was able to do it because I was a stay-at-home mom and I'd already volunteered everywhere else. And so it kind of just naturally came to be that I was able to fill an appointment and then get elected. Um, since then, they have the, the age of the board has actually skewed even older because as people retire from teaching, they want to serve on the board of the school that they, the, the district that they taught in. So it's just one example of how this can work where you literally have people, it's, it's not, it's not, you're not able to kind of plan it to get a certain distribution of people because those people aren't available to do it when you would be saying we need three more women and we need two more people in their twenties and one more person in their thirties. Those people don't want to do it. Well, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, what's next? The government's going to look at a board like that and say, hey, you don't have enough young people. You're discriminating against young people. Are they going to start determining what's the proper allocation of people based on traits like age or gender or race? Is that really the government's business to say, "Mm, I think we should have at least one uh, woman, one person under 30, Mm -hmm. one person of whatever race, I mean, that, that just serves to, to create more distinctions between us. It emphasizes distinctions between us that, you know, it makes us feel different from each other in ways that aren't important rather than downplaying those differences. It, it breeds resentment. And I think, you know, then it makes people feel like quota higher. So then if there's a one-woman quota, you know, everyone and there's one woman on a board, the quotas get, the other people on the board may assume that she's a quota fill, and that devalues you know, her earning her way there, which she may have done in the absence of a quota. It takes away the achievements that that people make in the absence of government mandates. And so that's Mm. why these quotas are really destructive. And wrong. And I think you just totally wrapped that up for us perfectly. (laughs) I hear the music. (laughs) Anastasia, thank you for joining us today and and giving us some of your time to explain this tough issue. Um, Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you again soon. That was Anastasia Bowden, Senior Attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation. And I'm Stacey Washington. We'll be back with more. This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife, Lauren, sharing from their book, Uncommon Marriage. For Lauren and me, Longevity in our marriage is due to the examples our own parents gave us. They encouraged us to always look to God and the Bible for answers to life's questions. 
But even with parents guiding you, so often in life and in marriage, we discovered that there isn't a clear path. After all, as the Apostle James wrote, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Instead, we walk forward hand in hand and make a path, but we do it with God. That's the key. So in those moments where you need guidance and maybe your parents or friends aren't there to help, God is always there and you can go to Him anytime. Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. One day I was using, it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was dropped off where you catch the train. 9 o'clock at night I came to, and I was still in the same place. I don't know what happened. I came to Adult and Teen Challenge. And with God in my life, I'm not the same at all. If you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, Adult and Teen Challenge can help. There are centers across the country, and you can find the one nearest you at 855-END-ADDICTION or at TeenChallengeUSA.com. This is Urban Family Talk. The church has to take the lead in ensuring that men are properly trained for fatherhood. We have an epidemic in which boys are not growing up with their fathers. So as Christian men, we have to stand in the gap and make up the hedge so that our communities are not destroyed. When we see fatherhood as a blessing and not an inconvenience, we will see children as spiritual weapons in our arsenal. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Join us in the battle to strengthen fatherhood. UrbanFamilyTalk.com This is House Call for Health. More than 42 million health insurance claims were denied in 2017. And according to a new study, that's usually where the process ends. Less than one-tenth of one percent of denied claims were appealed by patients. Health insurance experts say this is a big mistake. A report by the California Chronic Care Coalition found that state health officers reverse more than 60% of claim denials. They cite one case of a man whose insurance company okayed payment for surgery and recovery, then changed its mind and refused to pay. The patient filed a grievance and the company was forced to cover the claim. Health experts speak about step therapy, where insurers refuse to approve a doctor's course of treatment until other less expensive options are tried and fail. There's a bill in Congress that would allow doctors to appeal these step therapy decisions. For more health news, go to foxnewshealth.com. House Call for Health, I'm Anna Eliopoulos, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The law very specifically states uh, Section 214 of the Housing and Community Development Act of 1980. It says the HUD secretary is not prohi- or is prohibited from providing housing assistance to people who are in the country illegally. Uh-huh. It further states that if it is discovered that the homeowner or the apartment uh, leasee is harboring people who are illegal, HUD secretary has a duty uh, to remove them. So if they don't like that, it's the law, they need to change that. They can change the law. But here's what I find fascinating. Uh, They're talking about evicting children. We've made a provision that people can get a six-month deferral Mm -hmm. on action, and that can be renewed twice. That's 18 months. Mm That's enough time for them to actually do something. Uh-huh. Wow. So the, he's, he's put provisions in there, which to be 
to be completely frank, I wouldn't have put those in. Welcome back to the show, Stacey Washington. Head on over to StaceyOnTheRight.com and hit the subscribe button. Uh, I, I just, I want you to know that if I was that person who was in charge of HUD and I was doing this in order to make a statement to make sure that people who are in the country illegally and living in government subsidized housing would understand that they can't ever do this again, I would not be giving them 18 months to figure out what to do. I wouldn't. Why? Because they're in the country illegally. Self-deportation is, is a goal. It's one of the ways that the, the goals of or the actual execution of making sure that we don't have people in the country illegally can be attained. And that's by encouraging people to self-deport. And that is, well, it's kind of, you, you're taking away the teeth of the thing if you're saying, well, in 18 months you have to, no, no, you have six months and that's it. Six months and eviction notices are served, which is way longer than Americans get. When someone gets behind on their rent in the United States, usually it's 90 days and your landlord has the right to evict you. They're getting 18 months. Again, the double standard persists. Some people are more equal than others. Illegal immigrants are far more equal than American citizens. Do, I mean, do you not see that? I certainly see it. I think it is obvious that that's what's happening. So, yeah, we, we have to do our best to try to get something into place that's going to help and, and bring about the kind of result that we want. But if we don't do that, then we, we keep getting the same thing. So there was a devastating tornado here in Missouri last night and we were so annoyed. Um, and thank God everything was safe here around th these parts, but there was a violent series of tornadoes that tore across Missouri and three people were killed and there's been extensive damage. Now, one of the reasons I know it was pretty bad is because we had this uh, pro-life rally that was going to happen down at the Capitol in Jefferson city and it was scheduled for tomorrow, Friday. And um, we, so a girlfriend of mine who's a pro-life warrior, Zena Hackworth, she was going down because she was going to speak there. And I said, hey, let me ride with you. It'll be fun. And so at dinner, a couple of our kids were like, oh, don't have anything to do tomorrow. I'm riding too. So we were kind of going to pile up in her truck and head down. Well, it's been canceled because of the tornadoes, because they were in Jeff City and the rally was to be held in Jeff City. So here are the details here. Um, a large tornado tore through Jefferson City late Wednesday night around 11.45 p.m. And the National Weather Service in St. Louis issued a tornado emergency for the area after a violent tornado was confirmed on the ground. First responders actually worked through the night to begin search and rescue efforts for people who were trapped in collapsed buildings. They've confirmed that at least 20 citizens were transported to local hospitals it was given a pr preliminary rating of an EF3 tornado on Thursday afternoon, meaning it had a peak wind speed of 160 miles per hour. Three people were killed in Golden City, Missouri, after a tornado moved across the region Wednesday evening as well. There was also a tornadic thunderstorm which tracked from Ottawa County, Oklahoma, into Baxter Springs and Galena, Kansas, and then into Carl Junction, Oronogo, and Golden City, Missouri. Victims' identities will be released later. Actually, they're released this morning. Um, oh, wow. So it was Kenneth Harris and his 83-year-old wife, Opal, who were killed in the storm. Their bodies were found about 200 yards from their home. And then just west of Golden City, 56-year-old Betty Berg was killed when her mobile home was destroyed 
Her husband, Mark, was seriously injured. So please remember them in your prayers. Um, So Golden City and Jefferson City are actually about three hours apart. Uh, They have not yet really, like I'm looking here. Oh, here are some images uh, of Jefferson City. Wow, it's pretty bad. So they put out a call this morning. Uh, The governor of Missouri said legislators don't need to be here right now. Um, If you're planning on coming here for any reason, you should stay home. Don't come to Jeff City because they're trying to figure out how to get everything cleaned up. Uh, The governor, Mike Parsons, Mike Parsons actually took an aerial tour of the tornado damage and ongoing ongoing flooding Thursday morning. He says it is a devastation to the state. And of course, the president issued a tweet. Our hearts go out to the people of Missouri as they woke up to assess the damage from storms. You are strong and resilient and we are here to assist. Now, Jefferson City Mayor Kerry Turgan also issued an updated declaration of emergency that was executed on May 22nd and related to the flooding of the Missouri River and its tributaries. So, um, it's this is pretty terrible. This the some of the residents described the tornado as feeling like an earthquake, and um, there were a ton of different tornado warnings here in the St. Louis metro area, and we were you know, running up and up and down the stairs to the basement, you know, carrying our dog going back and forth. (laughs) Um, I think we were back up and down five or six times. We had six times the tornado warning siren went off. One of the times me and one of the the kids were outside walking on our street and we had to try to hurry and get back in the house and get down to the basement. So um, rough stuff. I'm, I'm grateful that there wasn't more damage, but it's, it's really sad to hear that three people lost their lives. Um, so turning to the Democrats and their attempt to impeach President, to impeach President Trump. I, so I, they're saying two different things here. And by the way, if you want to weigh in on this, I'd love to talk to you. 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. You can call in and join the program. Uh, Pelosi has told her colleagues that Trump is a villain. And then he wants to be impeached. Have, have you ever heard that kind of talk or seen it on a movie or something where someone who is an abuser says, well, you want me to beat you or, you know, you want me to hit you or you want me to destroy our property? No, no, that person doesn't. President Trump does not want to be impeached. He wants you to stop harassing him. It's a huge difference. It's easy to determine. So the House Speaker's message to Democrats came as vocal support for impeachment rose among lawmakers in the caucus, but there's nothing but crickets out here in the hinterlands. Even in heavily liberal jurisdictions, Americans want to move on from the Mueller report. They're tired. They're They're ready to let go. She also says that the family of Donald Trump should have an intervention with him. And my question is, why does he need an intervention as opposed to her needing one? How is it that she's not having her family members have an intervention with her or even even better? How is she not having an intervention with the Democrats who keep talking about impeachment, telling them that this is going to cost them the election? So 32 members of the House Democratic Caucus have so far voiced support for opening an impeachment inquiry into Trump. Uh, so I've heard a lot of talk. We need to follow the facts. We need to you know, we need to do this. We need to do that. We need to dot this I and cross that. Well, yeah, you know what you need to do? You need to get back to governing. Start working on that budget. How about that? How about going to the budget and saying, hmm, 
this is something that needs to be rectified. We're borrowing a trillion more than what we bring in every year. That's unsustainable. Notice how nobody even talks about it anymore. So, yeah. um, Turning to Alyssa Milano. So remember Alyssa Milano had said that there needed to be an intimacy strike. Uh, Women in America needed to refuse to be intimate with their boyfriends, relationships outside of marriage, and their husbands, et cetera, because they need to teach men a lesson um, about supporting anti-abortion legislation that to kind of activate men to be against abortion legislation by conservatives that, that seeks to make abortions harder to get. Now, there's a hard truth that we need to kind of accept here. And I think we've seen this a little bit. And I'm, I'm not speaking about our audience here at American Family Radio, but I am, I'm going to, you know, it's time to get a little bit heart to heart, a little bit real. The truth is, most Americans on both sides of the political aisle, they only boycott companies they don't use. So if a boycott involves a company that they like or a company that they actually enjoy using, like I've, I've heard this from so many people about Target. And I'm not, I am not saying this because I don't like the people who told me that or the people who are shopping at Target, but they like shopping at Target and so they keep doing it even though they know in their, when they're in there, they have a higher likelihood of being assaulted by some stranger in the store, in the open up and down the aisles, and that the bathroom policy of Target and the dressing room policy of Target puts them at risk. I've had people tell me, well, I just don't try on clothes there anymore, and I don't go to the bathroom there. And I'm like, wow. So you never have to go to the store, shop around, and then you have to use the restroom? You're saying you just hold it and leave the store? Why shop at a place where you can't use the bathroom? Anyway, so thinking of the boycotts of Starbucks, Target, Netflix, a lot of people are all the way in on those because they don't use Starbucks, Target, or Netflix. So if you do use those, you you will go to them. And it doesn't matter what, organization says to boycott them. And I find this to be a little interesting because I did use Netflix. Our whole family did. And giving it up was a total, it was a big deal. Giving up Target was a big deal. Sometimes we still like if our daughter works, she has a couple dresses still from there. Um, Massimo dresses, in fact, that are the, you know, Massimo dresses were under $29.99. And I'm not kidding you. The dresses are five or six years old because at least because we haven't been in there in that long. And she'll wear it, like she'll be wearing it to church. I'm like, oh my goodness, that dress is so cute. I'm like, oh, is that one of your Target dresses? She's like, yep, it's one of the, you know, I just have like two or three left. And it still looks good. I'm like, it sure does, still cute. Um, and so, you know, who who doesn't miss that kind of quality and longevity in clothing and for those prices? I mean, I would love to shop there, but they just won't give in. In fact, they're moving further to the left. So... You know, uh, Alyssa Milano said that Hollywood should boycott Georgia, but it shows how out of touch she is because, you know, at 46, it's been more than a decade since she was last on TV. So Georgia basically is now Hollywood East, right? 2016, Georgia 
surpassed Hollywood in TV and film production, ending a 95-year reign after those fur merchants moved their nascent movie industry from New Jersey to California. Filmmaker Ron Howard was appalled as the next Hollywood celebrity about George George's new, newly signed fetal heartbeat law, but he won't relocate the shooting of Hillbilly Elegy, which is slated to begin next month. Instead, he and his Imagine Entertainment partner Brian Grazer said they would boycott Georgia as a production center if the law takes effect as scheduled in January. In other words, after filming the Netflix movie starring Amy Adams has wrapped up. Ron Howard is all for boycotting Georgia once he's done making movies there. He'll go back to boycotting Chick-fil-A once he finishes ordering a sandwich. And the Georgia film industry has a much larger number of black filmmakers and black crew than any other state in the United States. So director Lexi Alexander tweeted out, I find these suggestions a little careless. Who are you punishing? Again, who, who are, who is she trying to punish? Tyler Perry says he's not leaving Georgia. The Motion Picture Association of America said in a statement, film and television production in Georgia supports more than 92,000 jobs and brings significant economic benefits to communities and families. It's important to remember that similar legislation has been attempted in other states and has either been enjoined by the courts or is currently being challenged. The outcome in Georgia will also be determined through legal process. We will continue to monitor developments. In other words, business is business. That's political. We'll watch the news at night. But in the daytime, we're going to be filming film projects in Georgia. So, again, Alyssa Milano has to learn the hard lesson that we don't live in Milano land or the United States of Milano. We live in the United States of America. And she's just one little old person. And her opinion doesn't matter any more than any of the other one little of us people. And she can't determine what industries will operate in which states. I think it's kind of delicious that she's getting this comeuppance. The problem is, she, it, that's like saying, I just taught this cup a lesson. You can't teach inanimate objects lessons. And her brain is an inanimate object. Unable to learn new things, incapable of accepting fresh information. So this lesson just flew right over her pretty little head. But the rest of us see it. The film industry's not leaving Georgia. She might as well get over herself. All right. You know what? You enjoy your evening. God bless from the heartland. We have more right after this news break. Mm-hmm.